Welcome to the Father's Heart with Tom Clark, better known as Papa Tom. Good morning, this is Papa Tom of the Father's Heart Talk Show. And we're here today with a special guest named Lee Dundas. And the reason I have her on our show today is because she is an attorney for a human rights attorney and she's a defender of freedom. And we're looking forward to 2024 to be an open door for freedom in the United States of America. It's probably going to be the most critical year since 1776 in the life of America. And with that in mind, I'd like to introduce you to a true patriot and a defender of human rights, Lee Dundas. She's calling all the way from the great state of California, if I can call California a great state. <laughs> uh, Lee, welcome yeah. to our show. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's an honor to be here, Tom. And uh, yeah, I mean, California is a great state in so many ways. We've got some of the prettiest country that I think exists on the planet, but we also have, uh, you know, Governor Gruesome and uh, political uh, swamp that is almost, uh, you know, akin to a third world country nowadays. But, you know, at, rest assured, there's folks like me uh, still in California who have not yet left who are working to uh, turn the tide. So, so there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you've written a book, right? I uh, have. Just Stand I have. Up. Is that the name of your book? It is. It is called Just Stand Up, My Fight for Freedom. You can see it behind me on the backdrop, but here's another copy. Just Stand Up, My Fight for Freedom from the Brothels of Asia to the Streets of America. And uh, it was Clay Clark. You know, you and I met uh, a few weeks ago at a Clay Clark event yes. in Tulare, California. But uh, Clay had been telling me for a couple of years now, oh, you really, really need to write a book. And, you know, if you're going to be a speaker, you need to have a book. They go hand in hand. And so October, a year ago, I think it was now, I caught a cold the first week of October. And I thought, well, you know, everybody's been saying to write a book. And I'm, I'm not good for much else this week with this with this head cold. So sat down right where you see me now in front of my computer and uh, started typing. And eight days later, I had a 399-page book because wow. I typed pretty quick. <laughs> That's pretty prolific. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> Who knew? And I had fun doing it. So, uh, so uh, and, and I felt like the, the data that I, I had to give was um, – uh, uniquely uh, timely. You know, I had spent a lot of the last decade working in third world countries, mm -hmm. uh, all of which uh, were communist or formerly communist or may as well have been communist mm -hmm. uh, in Southeast Asia. And uh, a lot of that work was against the trafficking, the child trafficking, child brothel industry. And people are constantly wondering how 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 it is that families end up having a you know one of their girls in a brothel and once you do a fair bit of work um in these regions you rapidly understand that uh the communist regimes are a huge driver of trafficking and it's because they reduce the level of economic um prosperity so low uh, i mean you're literally starving to death it just just absolutely starving in fact one of the first things that happened when I was working in this brothel town of 140 brothels is we'd gotten a girl uh, to agree to do um, an interview like you and I are doing right now. We had yes. taken a Christian Christian film crew, crew from Australia had, had come into the brothel and we had asked a, a number of girls, kids, they were, they were, they were kids. How old they were they, be, by the way? Um, the youngest ones, there, there are no lower ages. I mean, you can buy babies in, in these countries, but wow. The young ones they keep behind uh, closed doors, uh, but the older ones, and I, I say older, I mean preteen, teen, and up, those are kids that you can um, you can walk into a bar, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you walk in there and you order a burger and a brew of your choice. And then you order number 10 or number 13 or number whatever it is. And it's just that easy. So we were there and we were doing this work and we'd asked some of the girls if they'd be willing to be interviewed. And nobody was willing to be interviewed except for this one girl. And um, so this is what the brothels look like, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're just little, little, little restaurant looking things. And you walk in and that, by the way, there's teddy bears on the floor there. It's kind of blurry on my side, but mm-hmm. little pallets on the floor, little teddy bears. And so, so anyway, so we're there. And this girl uh, says she's got an hour to kill before her first meeting, mm-hmm. which is an appointment with a John. And she comes into our hotel room, which is really just another room in the brothel, but they call it a hotel. And we've got a chair in the corner, like you see in 60 Minutes, with her face in the shadows. And we asked her, one of the questions we asked her, Tom, was, did you know what you would be doing when you got here? And she said, oh, yeah, I I knew exactly what I would be doing. Um, Because in Europe, it's a different scene. Where my my NGO was working in Europe, it's a bait and switch. They tell these girls that are gypsies or Ukrainian, poor Poor girls. Oh, you're going to work in a, you know, in a hotel, or you're going to work in a bar. Uh, you'll you'll be a maid, or you'll be a waitress. And then they drug them, and they take their passports. And when they wake up, they're chained to a bed. But they didn't think that they were going to be working in a brothel when they left their village, right? But in Asia, it's very very different. The girls know. Um, and this girl looked dead into the camera, and she said, "Oh yeah, I, I knew exactly what I would be doing when I got here. Basically, it wasn't a bait and switch." And uh, and then she said something that just stopped us all in our tracks. And she said, but I'm not unhappy. And my colleague from London, yeah, my colleague said what you said. He leaned over to me in in my ear and he goes, there must be something wrong with the translation. Nobody's happy to be in a brothel. Ask it again. So we asked it for a second time in as many minutes. Did you know what you'd be doing? And for the second time, she looks at the camera and she goes, I knew exactly what I'd be doing, but I am not unhappy because my seven brothers and sisters have food on the table and they're not starving to death and they're in school and my mother is same she's she's you know she's doing well and if you had asked me before that point do you think it's wrong to sell your eldest child to a brothel i think you and i and everybody listening would have been you know having only one answer to that question of course right but the real question is this is it any more or less wrong to fail to sell your eldest child to a brothel so you can watch every single one of your children and you starve to death this quarter, this year, is that a better, higher, you know, end to that particular calculus? And really the question we need to be asking is how in the hell do you get so freaking poor that the only freaking answer on your buffet of options is to sell your 10 or 12 year old daughter to a brothel. And that answer leads back to communism. And that is one of the reasons we in America right damn now need to understand what is going on, that this is a communist overthrow of our government, that it's been going on since the 50s when Khrushchev said, I'll take America without firing a single shot. I'll destroy her from within. And they set up 45 goals to take us over. And they are more than halfway there on their goals right now. Mm-hmm. That's shocking that you mentioned that. And when you started to say it to me, what thought came to the back of my mind from my background, I guess, experience a little but psychology is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And you know when your when your basic needs are not being satisfied, it really drives people to do things that they would just not normally even conceive of doing. Yeah, and I think I think that's a cautionary note for the fact that we're walking in. I mean, I don't know if you saw that clip that's making its way around the internet, but I got served it. I think yesterday, um, and Cigna and United and Anthem Blue Cross have all removed war 
as a covered event for you now if you get ill. So two years ago in their policy language, it said, hey, um, if you're subjected to an act of war and you're, you know, bleeding and missing an arm, you know, go to your nearest hospital and we'll, we'll do our best to make it right. And now uh, it's war, whether declared or undeclared or riots or natural disasters. They, they don't want to cover you in, in the election year of 2024. And I think we need to ask ourselves, uh, when you take that piece of data, along with the backdrop of all the billionaires buying up ground in Kauai and making underground bunkers that are stocked with food for a minimum of three years to a maximum of 10 years, what on earth do the bigger players on the chessboard know is coming down the pike and why are they uh, reacting this way? And what I would say, because I know we're coming up to the end of our first segment probably here is, you know, if you've ever been living in a situation where you don't have access to a grocery store or electricity and we i've been experiencing this and i can talk about it when we come back from the break it takes you all damn day to meet your basic needs right. to find food and heat it is a 14 hour situation so we need to be very cautious i think walking into 2024. yeah no, it's um it's sort of like makes you really stop and think about uh, the things you're saying because uh fascist sort of governments are uh the government in itself plus uh, are interwoven with private sector industry. And what right. you were describing was private sector industry in terms of these huge insurance companies already being in bed, in a sense, with the government and understanding what's coming down in terms of what their plan is. Evil has a plan. Now, thank God, God has a plan that I believe is going to totally shatter the plan of evil people. But yeah. evil always has a plan. And... Uh, the older I become, the more and more I realize that true evil, uh, the higher realms of evil, are all for tyranny. The higher forms yeah. of evil really gravitate towards taking our freedom away from us. And, yeah. and their, their view of us, if you hear these uh, snobby people like Hillary Clinton call people deplorables or the great <laughs> unwashed, um, all these expressions of the elitists are looking down their nose at human beings. Mm -hmm. And thinking of themselves so much better than human beings. Yeah. And so their their intentions in terms of their whole philosophy, wanting to depopulate the earth and to control the rest of people, mm -hmm. and the idea of uh, not letting us uh, reproduce or procreate, uh, mm -hmm. like God made us to be fruitful and multiply, they want to take that away from us. Yeah. Uh, and then you find yourself in a, in a situation. And... And for years and years, they've been doing this behind the scenes. And yeah. now, now they're just being brazen about it. They're just being blatantly uh, out yeah. there and just, you know, exposing it to its raw um, yeah. depravity as being well, exposed. And, and I think that a lot of people make the mistake of thinking they're in the category of the haves and not the have-nots. Mm -hmm. A lot of politicians think, oh... You know, if I, I've been told if I go along with this plan, me and mine will be okay at the end of the day and, you know, we'll be provided for. And those are people who are not students of history. Those are people who have not ever really taken a good look around and recognized what happens during a fascist or communist or any other totalitarian overthrow, which is, it, you know, you're, you're a useful idiot about as long as you're useful. And once they get done gone. with you, then you're gone. That, 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 that gun of censorship, that gun of genocide that gun of you know whatever gun is coming you know for the for the have-nots eventually it swings back around uh, at the people who think that they've been magically tefloned and immunized mm -hmm. against against it and uh, nobody is safe in a totalitarian regime safety 
is things like our constitution and recognizing, you know, half of my family immigrated from Europe. Um, they were escaping the communists of last century, uh, the Red Terror death squads that were marching across. Uh, We've got to take a break Europe. here. Lee. Yeah, no worries. Um, I didn't we'll realize we were coming up on that time. We'll be back <laughs> with Lee Dundas. This is Papa Tom, and we're back with the Father Todd Talk Show. And we were discussing with Lee Dundas in the last segment the issue of the haves and the have-nots. And it's very interesting that evil is very adept at the art of deception and delusion. And somehow the evil has convinced people that they're the haves when they're really not. So let's discuss that with uh, Lee. What do you see is that illusion that's come upon people that they think that they're haves and they're part of the inside group when that's just a lie? Yeah, you know, it's just a lot of people, I think, are not, like I was uh, mentioning before the break, are just not students of history. They don't realize, you know, uh, that that in every regime that has sort of come along and been a genocidal horror show, whether it was Pol Pot in Cambodia or, or Hitler or Stalin or, you know, whoever you want to pick from the from the pages of history, they all come, they all come and do the same thing. They make a bunch of promises. Oh, everybody's going to be living equally. You know, we're going to go to this commune. You know, we're all going to be one. We're all going to be equal. Well, that's BS. There is always a class. You know, there's a class that's at the top and there's a class that's not. And the best you can hope for is really what we've got in America, which is, uh, even if you're not part of the upper crust, even if you're an immigrant with no money and the shirt on your back, like uh, some of my ancestors were, if you work hard and put your nose to the grindstone here, you can end up being, uh, you know, a guy who's got material possessions and a home and a ranch and whatever else you want. Um, very much unlike India and the caste systems and very much unlike uh, communist regimes and, and various other places on the planet. And people just, they don't understand that. that be, they believe the lies that those in power are saying, you know, the Hitlers of the world. And the politicians fall prey to this, I think, almost more than the average guy does. Because they come to these politicians and in many cases, they blackmail them uh, or bribe them or they just sit them down and tell them what they want to hear. Um, and the guy goes, OK, well, if I go along with this new crowd that, of, of power elites that are coming into my universe, I'll be OK. They've told me that that me and mine will be OK. Well, that is sort of a fatal mistake. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I found was most interesting, I uh, I met a woman here in Southern California whose family was the second richest uh, something like that family uh, in Cuba before Castro came into power um, in the in the 50s, 60s era. And her dad had gone to college with Castro where he murdered people on campus. So she she and her family were laboring under no... Her dad murdered people. No, no, no. Well, Castro. Well, Castro, okay. But Fidel had been murdering people, but as a, as a college kid, like things that we didn't even hear about right. Fidel. But her dad had been watching occur, right? And he was like, under under no misapprehensions that this was a good guy, Fidel. He's like, oh no, that guy is a evil guy, evil guy, evil guy. Um, but they were very well off. He owned um, her dad, that is, owned a manufacturing plant or something in Cuba, and they, yeah, they were one of the like second or third wealthiest families on on the island. And uh, and as soon as Castro came to power, as soon as he came to power. And they had, they had not made an enemy of Castro. They just knew the time of day. But they hadn't gone out there and made themselves a target. He came to them, and he took all of their stuff away. Mm -hmm. And that family ended up fleeing to Europe. 
with nothing but the clothes on their back because communists and fascists are money hungry. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they come into power, they want money. So all of these rich people right now, these these guys who want to think that they're the, the Zuckerbergs, you know, oh, maybe I'm a, a gajillionaire, a billionaire. I've got three billion in the bank. I've got whatever. I, I'm going to play like the big boys. I'm going to go buy up, you know, 500 acres on Kauai or some Hawaiian island and, and make an underground bunker just like uh, the Twitter guy and just like Zuckerberg are doing and, and I'll be okay. Well, will you? Because you're going to be, trust, trust me when I tell you that if the communists come into power, the fascists come into power, whoever's driving the deep state today, uh, the first person they're going to come for ain't me because I got two cents in my bank account right now. <laughs> you know, It's going to be you because you've got lots of commas and zeros behind you. And uh, it is not pretty when they come into power um, that you are the first people that they will shove into the call it what you will, the, uh, the, the quarantine camp or the concentration camp or the re-education camp. You know, you mentioned in one of your talks at the Reawaken American Tour in Tulare, California, uh, by the way, you're a great speaker. And uh, the, spe the speech that you gave, you talk about normalcy bias. And it struck me because I said, you know, she's exactly right. It's, and it's not just the Bill Gates of the world, you know, who are buying up the land and thinking they get away with it, or the Fauci's or whoever these people who are who operate at, they think they're at the, the high end of this thing, um, of the deep state. Um, but it's the, comp, it's, it's the middle class person who in their normalcy bias, they just, just give me my old business, just, just give me my business. I mean, I remember in COVID, one of the first things that struck me, uh, in New York City, they closed 100,000 businesses in New York City. Now, these were restaurants. These were not large businesses. This were not Fortune 500 companies. These were um, successful, lucrative um, businesses in the middle class, and even probably worse to say, the upper middle class. Upper middle class businesses where people were making good bucks. Uh, and their families were well off. They could send their kids to private schools. They think they really made it. And yet those are the people I think that are even worse to me than the billionaires because the billionaires should show better, but there's only a few of them. But the middle class is full of millions of people mm -hmm. that are in that middle class. Could you speak to the issue of the normalcy bias and how that affects the middle class in America? Yeah, and I just will put a pin in it, but the... Uh, the um the middle class is what really separates America and our system of government from every other country and system of government that came before because you used to have the haves and the have-nots and there was sort of no in-between. And the middle class is really unique to America and a lot of the first world countries who've adopted a more constitutional republic style of government and we can't afford to lose it. Uh, but going back to your question, normalcy bias or normality bias is, you know, it's it's, it's how we're psychologically wired, getting back to you know the Maslow's hierarchy and, and psychological concepts. Normality bias is our brain being lazy and saying, I want every day to be just like the other days. So if on Tuesday morning you drop your kid at preschool and you roll down the road in Huntington Beach and you go to get your coffee and then you go to do your yoga right after that, and as you're driving down PCH this morning, all of a sudden you see a very large wave off to the side, you know, out, out there in the breakers in, in Huntington, the first thing your brain does is goes, oh, that's a good surfing day. You know, they, they said uh, we we're going to have some big storms here on the West Coast this last week. That's, that's just a really big wave. That's all that is. That's just a, you're try, you know, it, and, and maybe it's not a really big wave. Maybe it's a tidal wave. But the first thing your brain does is it goes into denial. 
because mm -hmm. it's not used to seeing tidal waves here in America, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And then, so that's the first step of normality bias. And the second step is this sort of Q&A phase where you deliberate. And your brain's looking at the wave and going, hot damn, that thing looks like a tidal wave. I mean, I've seen pictures of tidal waves, and I've never seen one in real life, but it really looks like a tidal wave. And the other part of your brain that craves a, a, a normal routine and no upset of your apple cart in the middle of your Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. is going, no, 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 it's just a really big break. You know, break. You're going to see some surfers coming down the pike any second. It's, it's fine. It's, it's just normal. And people get hung up in phase one, which is denial, and phase two, which is Q&A, back and forth. Could it be that? I don't think so. No, it's just fine. No, maybe it really is. No, nah, it's just fine. And the third step of normality bias is where you and your loved ones need to get to if you want to have a prayer's hope of getting out of a natural disaster or a mugging or, you know, a concentration camp or whatever it may be. And that is decisive action, where your brain finally um, gets over itself yeah, and goes, in. yeah, it, it goes, you know what, that thing is a tsunami. And if I don't port my car toward the hills and climb a palm tree, I'm going to get swept out to sea and die, right? Mm -hmm. And that is why you see supermodels clinging to the top of palm trees in Thailand uh, during the tsunami in whatever year it was 20 years ago. You know, she clung to the top of some palm tree. That was a supermodel who had a fairly good dialed in ability to get through steps one and two where people get stuck in paralysis analysis and get to step three, which is I need to take action. And the beautiful part of normality bias is your brain doesn't understand a drill from the real deal. So you can drill your lag time in getting through this. And that's what Navy SEALs do. You know, the Navy SEALs, they put, they call it the, um, Oh, what's it called? The box test, I think. They put basically a burlap sack, a big black sack over their head during uh, Hell Week or one of those training regimens. And then they yank it off after some period of time. And the guy's got one second, one second to analyze the room and decide if it is fine, if it's lethal threat, mm -hmm. or if it's somewhere in between. And if it's lethal threat, he's supposed to kill it before it kills him. But if it's just a mother who's pregnant and not hiding a gun behind her burqa and her big, you know, drapey mm -hmm. Middle Eastern clothes, you don't want to kill a pregnant mother, but you do need to kill a pregnant mother holding a gun, right? So it's, and, and he's got one second and they do this over and over again. So the guy goes from being completely blind and deaf and disoriented to one second, lights on, you need to analyze right now correctly what the deal is. And the reason they do that is to shorten the lag time on normality bias. Mm -hmm. And that is why Navy SEALs have a kill ratio that is, in some cases, 200 or 400 to 1, meaning they take out 400 of the bad guys before we lose one of ours, versus the average Army grunt or Navy grunt who's got a 20 to 1 kill mm -hmm. ratio, 40 to 1. You know. So what you want to do when your kids are in the car, whether you're going to school and you got five minutes to kill or you're going for a car ride to the mountains and you got five hours to kill, is you say things to them like, Hey, what would happen if uh, you know a tsunami came for the car right now, or a lion jumped? At, you know, a so you're asking a question. Yes, an unusual question, mm -hmm. and they will say something like, "Mom, we don't have giraffes in America. There's no, never going to be a giraffe jumping in front of the car on the freeway." And you say, "Okay, babe, you're right, probably, but humor me. What would happen if it did? What should we do?" Yeah. And like I said in my speech at Clay Clark, you don't care what they say; you just care that they say something 
because any plan is better than no plan. And so maybe your kid says, I don't know, we parked the car and turn the flashers on, turn the hazards on. Great. Great, babe. What else could we do? I don't know. We could take your cell phone and place a call to 911. Great. What else? I don't know. If the cell phone's dead, we could walk into that store over there and ask them for help. Again, you don't really care what their plan is. You just care that they're, they're issue spotting and they're posing and resolving the problem in their head. And the better they get at doing this on a drill scenario basis when it's not real life, when it actually happens, when they've got a gun to their head, God forbid, in a mugging situation, or there's a tsunami coming for them and they're surfing, or there's a lion running down we'll the road. We'll be back in a moment with Lee yeah. Dundas.